0: all right hey hey, y'all now uh moving into the second chapter here of symbolic exchange and death i'm sure we'll go beyond it but uh this is when we're getting first into simulation so this is the first time so 1976 five years before the 81 release of and Simulation, that baudrillard lays out, you know, what what exactly simulation means to him, and what he says here is very much similar to what he what he ends up saying in Simulacron Simulation, but they uh, they accompany each other pretty well, and it's odd because there are a number there there are two books between this one and Simulacron Simulation uh, as to why he didn't just proceed with this idea from 76 here is a mystery to me but yeah this is this is what we have anyways he begins it by immediately laying out the three stages of it where he says that there are three orders and they run parallel to the successive mutations of the law of value since the renaissance so the first one the counterfeit which is the dominant schema in the classical period from the renaissance to the industrial revolution the second is production which is the dominant schema in the industrial era. The third is simulation, which is the dominant schema in the current code-governed phase. So if we think back again, we can think of the code as being that kind of realization of truth, if you will, to the science, you know, institutional validity or whatever, that places on a certain given societal framework or whatever, um, at least the image or the illusion of certain validity that transcends any sort of given superstition or anything of that sort. Now what is important to notice is note here is that the three phases counterfeit production and simulation does not imply that the counterfeit and production are not simulations and this is indicative this is this is apparent with the the title where These are three orders of of the simulacrum. Let me turn this down a little bit. Three orders of the simulacrum. So just because the third one is labeled simulation, that does not mean that the other two do not fall under that rubric, don't fall under that uh, schema, or schematic to be proper. So he specifies by saying that the first order simulacrum operates on the natural law of value, the second order of simulacrum operates on the market law of value, In the third-order simulacrum on the structural law of value. Now, there's still so much contention as to what that necessarily means, and I can only offer my hypothesis, right? And people go, well, not so much anymore, because people don't really care about this stuff. But what is... Here's my idea. The counterfeit can be likened to, in a sense, the... And I think we could turn to Foucault for this, thinking about language and the order of things, just the kind of just the attachment of any given signifier that is signif- that signifies a certain thing, right? A certain thing in the world. So how Foucault kind of thinks about that in the order of things, which you know I should be discussing on here pretty soon, I think. But you know, beside the point, is that there are different degrees of relationship between a language between a word and the thing it signifies. Now you have the most clear example that he gives, the onomatopoeia, right? The, the thing that in language with the word is supposed to mirror, supposed to mimic, supposed to emulate, supposed to simulate, the thing it's signifying as closely as possible. So I like to think of the counterfeit in that way, the most basic representation of you know, the given the world. Which is how it operates on the natural law of value, whatever that really is, because he doesn't really define what that is. But that's kind of a definition I work with. Like anyone willing to have a conversation with me about that, we, you know, we could surely go to much more interesting places. But for now, we have that production being the do- second uh, order of simulation corresponds to you know the the relationship between people culture, society, any of these things. Artifacts is perhaps the best example. So how do, how do artifacts play the role of signifying, you know, the thing in the world that they're meant to signify or do whatever? Art would fall under this, this category, the kind of Kantian location of the beautiful and the sublime, like that whole discussion would fall under the second order simulation. The third one, simulation, third order being simulation, um, corresponds to the code-governed face. So that's how I defined it earlier, right? The realization of all things, the solidification of ideas, of people, of cultures, of identities, in their image form, that, you know, despite its claim towards some kind of liberatory opening, um, corresponds more to a closing. And if we think back to, you know, for a critique of the political economy of the sign in the, one of the last chapters there, uh, Baudrillard says that the media... I use this example as being the the space in which, you know, simulation might be most uh, characteristic of, or that simulation is most indicative of. The media are that which that doesn't allow a response, right? So you're you just endowed with, you know, meaning kind of washes over you messages or whatever. And you aren't given that opportunity to respond. And as I said, then, you know, we can certainly think about, we have to think about this differently in the Twitter-based world, like, or responding, seems to have a, a much heavier role than people just watching the television in the, you know, the 20th century. But if we accept his his hypothesis, then it is the media in which, or it is the media, that things don't are not opened up to possibility, but are actually closed off, and they're closed off so that they can become easily digestible by uh, us consumers. Now, with these three orders, they are susceptible to change because, you know, remember, we're working with Baudrillard here. There are going to be contradictions in his thought, contradictions in his, you know, the way that he deals with these things where you know, any number of them that I brought up uh, to this time, which makes it difficult to locate exactly what he means by each one of these phases. And I hope that my, how, how I kind of laid it out here is, is a good kind of starting point to think about it, but we'll get in, you know, we'll get into it a little bit more. But for now he, he doesn't really unpack it here he takes this opportunity now to move into what it means to be you know humans beings or whatever in relation to this simulation so in what what is it going to follow really borrows much from his first book the system of objects so you know for those that have just skipped to this one i'm probably going to make reference to that one um, which probably won't be too confusing or it's it's not all that necessary for those people that haven't watched the or listened to my first couple of videos on his first two books I mean it's kinda of blasphemy to say this but I think that they're you know they're not really necessary to grasp the rest but rest of his stuff but anyways I digress so Baudrillard in thinking about uh, he, he uses up opp- takes this opportunity to think about robots and the automaton and he uses them Uh, almost metaphorically, to think about the difference between first- and second-order simulation. So between the the automaton and the robot, the automaton corresponds to the the theatrical, mechanical, and clockwork counterfeit of man, where the technique is to submit everything to analogy and to the simulacrum effect, whereas the other, the robot, is dominated by a technical principle where the machine has the upper hand and where, with the machine, equivalence is established so you know etymologically thinking about the robot in this way uh the 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 name comes from czech or the word comes from the czech for slave and uh, you know we you think back to um K-P-E-K with the, with r-u-r for that one but between the automaton and the robot Baudrillard sees this um i guess kind of s- sequential uh, progress where the, where the automaton is the analogon of man and remains responsive to him, whereas the machine is the equivalent of man, appropriating him to itself as an equal in the unity of a functional process. So for him, this sums up the difference between first and order simulacra. So whereas the automaton actually is recognized as being exterior to, yet still has that kind of analogous type um, potential to it, the analogous character the robot does not retain that sort of exteriority where the distinction between the two becomes harder to grasp, grasp to the extent that, you know, we come to question our own thinking, right? Kind of the Isaac Asimov mm-hmm. title, I, robot, right? I being the robot. To what extent am I engaged in that sort of uh, what I believe to be exterior to me, notably the robots, the slaves? To what extent am I part of that system? Am I, in fact, a robot. So what characterizes the shift from the um, automaton to the robot is that what we see in the robot for Baudrillard is is no more semblance or dissemblance, no more god or man, only an imminent logic of the principle of operativity, where what we would have traditionally in like first order simulacrum had kind of located in the realm of the robot. These are the things I kind of just mentioned, like the slave type uh, characteristics, like only ever always working, only ever always, all right, we'll go with that, uh, is then discernible from what we do. And in that sense, that the distinction is lost. So the effect that this had for Baudrillard is that men, as men in this way, only began to proliferate when in that with the industrial revolution they took on the status of machines freed from all semblance freed from even from their double they grew increasingly similar to the system of production of which they were nothing more than the miniaturized equivalent you know that micro microcosm of that same system of production hence its location within the industrial era where people you know um having such a strong rapport with machinery we think of the henry ford type like a production line uh, and the effect that that has on the humans locating themselves as humans or seeing themselves as humans where it's not as that though that um, the human disappears but that the human takes on a radically new form hence you know Baudrillard's use of the term man is still that regrettable term but the one that's supposed to signify or designate humans so a greater effect of this is that we see um, kind of the dissipation of any kind of original referent. Not to say that, that such a thing ever really necessarily existed, um, but that in first-order simulation, how there was still that idea of analogy, how there was still that kind of uh, differentiation between the human and the robot, uh, because we have lost that, we, uh, we see the facilitation of the general law of equivalence. That is to say, in his words, the very possibility of production. So with this being said, how the proliferation of humans comes to occur is not necessarily through production, but reproduction. So he's coming back to what he was saying in the first chapter uh, about how reproduction takes over. And for him, the critical analyses that developed of that sort of system were indicative of Benamine and McLuhan where he says that, you know, Benjamin was also the first, with McLuhan after him, to grasp technology as a medium rather than a productive force, at which point the Marxian analysis retreats as the form and principle of an entirely new uh, generation of meaning. So this is because Benjamin was the first to draw out the essential implications of the principle of reproduction. He shows that reproduction absorbs the process of production, changes its goals, and alters the status of the product and the producer. So in this way, you know, Baudrillard's was trying to say that Marxism kind of missed the mark and was trying to apply an analysis to something that had disappeared, right? When there was still something of a, um, a rupture or something of a, of a medium or a middle ground or something that differentiated humans from the machines that they used for production or from production itself. So the shift between then second order simulation, or second order simulacra, and third order simulacra is it's it's kind of difficult to grasp. For me, it's it's essentially the shift into science. Okay. So what Baudrillard says is that it is in the genetic code that the genesis of simulacra today finds its completed form at the limits of an ever more forceful extermination of references and finalities of a loss of semblances and designators we find the digital programmatic sign which has a purely tactical value at the intersection of other signals bits of information tests and which has the structure of micromolecular code of command and control so at this level the question of signs and the rational destinations their real and their imaginary their repression reversal The illusion they form of what they silence or their parallel significations is completely effaced. Now, it would seem to me, and this is where I have trouble with this, and it's difficult to conceptualize, is that this seems all indicative of the second order as well. The difference, however, I would argue, is the resurrection or, perhaps not resurrection, or the the erection of, you know, scientific discourses as a means of explaining you know the world and giving the world a certain face giving humans a certain identity a certain um, stillness and it is of this attempt to re-articulate or to re-erect resurrect re-erect a distinction between humans as you know natural real entities in contrast to you know nature in contrast to animals in contrast to to whatever. Now it's these types of distinctions that propels Baudrillard or compels Baudrillard to think about things in terms of a certain repressive hypothesis where we are seeing precisely in our attempt to kind of exercise the world of or to try and kid ourselves of having lost our distinction from robots or whatever that we are entering a new phase a much more pernicious one precisely because it attempts to convince us of our our lack of or our own humanity when it has long gone which is where i think the distinction really lies so one example of this is in the case of dna as he just mentioned where he asks perhaps or he says it remains to be seen whether dna is itself a myth it's just being one of those kind of tools of, you know, the institutional formations of third order simulacrum that operate in a sense to convince us of our humanity, of our non-robotic operativity. So this leads him to, to say that we find under the rigorous sign of science, the end of dialectical evolution. Moreover, he continues that life is now ruled by the discontinuous indeterminacy of the genetic code by the teleonomic principle. Finality is no longer at the end. There is no more finality nor any determinacy. Finality is there in advance, it inscribed in the code. So any sort of a finality that we might uh, discern that we might actually that might derive from kind of some kind of scientific observation or whatever deduction is in itself a tool is a strategy employed by the code as a sort of trompe l'oeil right like this idea of the red herring comes back again something that is intended to convince us of our humanity which just essentially misses the mark so it's in that sense that we enter this the third order as having we're in the stage where nothing has any attachment to a a real referent but what's more because that is also indicative of the second order what really makes the third order special is all our attempts to convince us of our reality so take one example that really helps me understand this is um pornography ha. funny enough uh through pornography we come to see ourselves having a body, a body that desires, a body that wants, a body that, you know, has excretes fluid, um, that can do bodily things. And it is in that hyperreal demonstration of sex, sexuality of bodies that we are actually, we are not actually convincing ourselves or not actually making apparent our connection to some kind of natural body but we're only becoming acquiescent with the hyper real version of that body and so pornography in it's the way that it's demonstrated most prominently is just one strategy of convincing ourselves that we are still humans if you will and of course many discourses surrounding that still permeate right you know justifications for very terrible acts being located in some kind of evolutionary paradigm or the naturality of humankind that erases you know the kind of linguistic stuff that develops over top of whatever we'd call nature so i just use pornography as one example of that 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 at least for me kind of helps to think about what Baudrillard is getting at with this third order simulation so then, Baudrillard quotes Nietzsche, who says that you know, who says, "Down with all hypotheses that have allowed belief in a real world, where we can't, we cannot fall prey to these Apollinian, you know, to try and use some Nietzsche-type uh, vernacular kind of Apollinian discourses to try and grasp the foundations of the world, because these things are much more complicated. They're they're much more elusive. They're in many ways can be imaginary. They can be." Mystical, they can they can, you know, belong to the realm of magic, that don't doesn't lend itself to a clear, Apollo like Socratic m- method analysis, you know. His his old project in the birth of tragedy. Baudrillard really wants to channel that and think about the world not as not so, cleanly organized, and how even those apparatuses that or those attempts to observe the world in such a way are in fact part and parcel of this system, this kind of oppressive realization of all things in the form of simulation. So one of the effects that this has in, you know, one of the moments that Baudrillard turns somewhat political is to think about the two-party system that's really uh, prominent in, you know, in many, many, many countries. The two-party system corresponds for Baudrillard to a certain binary structure, right? Ones and zeros. A sort of structure that is indicative of third order simulation and then you know in effect as well second order simulation the kind of easy the grasping between what is real what is unreal as it comes out in the binary form so for Baudrillard that is party politics then our two-party system is mirrors that same kind of cultural logic that sort of drive that move into third-order simulation. So what stands in opposition to that, and we think and the example he gives is totalitarianism as a single-party system, that cannot operate precisely because it does not abide by the same logic. So what he says is that this is because single-party rule, totalitarianism, is an unstable form which drains the political stage and can no longer ensure the feedback of public opinion the minimal current in the integrated circuit that constitutes the transistorized political machine. The two-party system, by contrast, is the end of the end of representation, since solicitation reaches its highest degree in the name of a simple formal constraint when you approach the greatest perfect competitive equation between the two parties. This is only logical democracy attains the law of equivalence in the political order, and this law is fulfilled by the seesawing of the two terms, which thus maintains their equivalence, but by means of this minuscule divergence, allows for public consensus and the closure of the cycle of representation. And this is really... It's easy to think about the United States in this way, almost deceptively easy, but I'm going to do it anyways. Where it seems... It makes me very suspicious how close elections are right take the one the latest one like with um trump and clinton the, the fact that you know there was they each won in their own way right you had clinton winning with the popular vote and trump with the electoral college both legitimate i don't want to delegitimize any either of those right they both serve a purpose now that's a conversation for another day for for anyone who's really interested, but for now I'm just gonna kind of play put them on an even playing field. What that says or it makes me generally suspicious is just because how clean it is. Half the population thinks this, half the population thinks this. Easy. Right down the middle. And of course there are liars and whatnot. But if we're if we're being properly Bogirardian, what we're really thinking about are like the totalizing frameworks or those things that stand in for holes. So in a sense, the majority standing in for the whole. Or what is really going on with the with the big scale movements rather than just individual circumstances. And I believe this is what he's saying here. Where there is the maintenance of a certain um, I guess political equivalence. Where under democracy we see this equivalence sort of maintained where what is does not exist on the one side of the equation then gains its I guess, in a sense, cathartic power by not being all the problems of the other one. or not being that of the other one, kind of the difference um, or the, the the deridian term there, the deferral and difference. I think it's um, for some reason, it's eluding me. Uh, you know, you are this precisely because you are not this. Now it's this split this clean 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 split that makes Baudrillard suspicious and it works really well in his in the in the context of his argument thinking about third order simulation in relation to kind of some kind of binary structure and you know Hegelian dialectics would be something that for him is and he comes to be rather critical of it something that it's it's very difficult to swallow because it's way too neat it doesn't account for all those moments that, or, or the different possibilities that may, can, are, are possible. Not to say that Baudrillard advocates for the, for these possibilities to actually come about, or that they even can, but that we see the closing off, the foreclosure of such, such possibilities in this third order simulation. So, with this, he says that two superpowers are necessary in order to keep the universe under control. A single empire would crumble by itself. The balance of terror merely allows regulated oppositions to be put in place, for strategy is structural, never atomic. And moreover, in every domain, duopoly is the completed stage of monopoly. Because if you have a single form of power, a single locus for which, you know, all ails, all, you know, mishaps, all suffering can be placed then you are going to see it inevitably crumble. Kind of absolute power paradigm. Whereas if you maintain an oppositionary type structure, oppositionary, I may have made that word up, uh, a binary type system, then what you can actually see is, or what you may see is actually, you know, the people turning against themselves. kind Kind of class analysis here is certainly possible or Marxist analysis of class where rather than thinking about, you know, the very condition of there only being two parties or two options, very restricted, instead of thinking about that, you know, it's thinking about how your party is the best, and it stands in opposition to that other one, when this is all just part and parcel of this kind of systemic law of equivalence or third order simulation. So Baudier then turns this analysis and even uh, undo a more specific point. And this is, to me, one of the most haunting moments in Baudrillard's work, where he thinks about the World Trade Centers. So he asks, why has the World Trade Center have two towers? He says, all Manhattan's great buildings are always content to confront each other in a competitive verticality from which there results an architectural panorama that is the image of the capitalist system the pyramidal jungle, every building of the offensive against every other. The system itself can be spotted in the famous image we have of New York on arriving by sea. The image has changed completely in a few years. The buildings are no longer obelisks, but trustingly stand next to one another like columns of a statistical graph. This new architecture no longer embodies a competitive system, but a countable one, where competition has disappeared in favor of correlation. New York City is the only city in the world to have retraced throughout the entire length and breadth of its history, the contemporary form of the capitalist system in this way, instantaneously changing according to the system. No European city has ever done this. And that's his French intellectualism kind of douchery sneaking through there. But we'll forgive him for that. So then he returns to the idea to the World Trade Centers. So this architectural graphism belongs to Monopoly. The World Trade Center's two towers are perfect parallelepipeds. Parallelopedes pepeds. Sorry. 400 meters high on a square base. They are perfectly balanced and blind communicating vessels. The fact that they there are two identical towers signifies the end of all competition, the end of every original reference. So paradoxically, if there were only one one tower, that is. The World Trade Center would not embody the monopoly. Since we have seen that is it becomes stable in a dual form, for the sign to remain pure, it must become its own double. This doubling of the sign really put an end to what it designated. So, sorry for reading that long passage, but it's it's an important one where he's, he's stating that because we are seeing, you know, we see the end of all competition, right? The kind of move from the capitalist mode to this hyper-capitalist one or, or what we may regrettably call as such because for lack of a better term he says that the twin towers and having you know being the exact same building um marks an end of all competition that duopoly or that kind of dual system is in itself the greatest form of monopoly so that's why he says that if there was only one tower it wouldn't be as though it's a pure monopoly, precisely because it would then abide wouldn't abide by the same kind of dualistic logic, but would in itself fall prey, in a sense, um, to its own, I guess, power. You know, power corrupts absolutely, or whatever. And this this passage is just really, you know, it's really interesting given nine eleven, and how both towers were destroyed and one was erected in in their place it's it's really fascinating and it it's as far as my reading goes of secondary literature on Baudrillard here uh, not many people have have thought about this not many people read this text mind you not many people read this whole text especially but it's extremely interesting so if we were to take Baudrillard's idea seriously in that if there were only one tower, the World Trade Center would not embody the monopoly. For the sign to remain pure, it must become its own double. This doubling of the sign really put an end to what it designated. Perhaps we are seeing, you know, a return, if you will, to capitalism in in its second-order location, localization. In which case, is Beaujard incorrect? Because I would be inclined to say no, you know, we're... I will accept Baudrillard's thesis to some extent and say that, you know, we can think of hyperreality, we can think of third order simulation, fourth order, fifth order, whatever, and we keep moving on that track. And in the case of 9-11, which is something he witnessed, he was alive for, and we'll get to what he said about it later on, but for now, it seems as though we aren't going back or we aren't going back to a certain designation or a certain, certain correspondence between that monopolistic type representation of capital in the form of the World Trade Center as being one building, and capital itself, or capitalism. Which kind of throws his argument out of, out of whack, out of sync, and it, it really problematizes it, in a sense. But it's interesting to think about nonetheless. And the fact that he thought about it in these terms is what I find haunting. Because it was, just, what, 25, yeah, 25 years before 9-11? It's interesting. So it's in this in this third order that we see this, this kind of birth of the hyperreal. So the hyperreal, the kind of definition he provides for it now is as follows. At the end of this process of reproducibility, the real is not only that which can be reproduced, but that which is already already produced, the hyperreal. So like, as I stated earlier, the example I gave, like the pornography, where, you know, we're dealing with bodies, we're dealing with Bodily fluids. We're dealing with bodily functions, but that can be hardly said to be, you know, to be indicative of, you know, sexuality, right? We think of that famous passage by someone whose name, um, God, some philosopher whose name eludes me. I think here, I'll find it. Sorry, yes, not a philosopher. It's Marlene Dietrich who said that um, in America, sex is an obsession. In other parts of the world, it is a fact. So, thinking about America in this way, uh, an extremely fascinating territory for Baudrillard, uh, it makes sense that America being that space of hyper-reality, you know, par excellence, would be the space in which sex is what we are obsessed with. And this goes further, you know, obsessed with sports, with with working out with all this, this, all these institutional formations that all just serve the purpose of convincing ourselves of our reality, in a sense. And then we have Disneyland or whatever to convince us that, you know, re- uh, irreality or unreality is over there or illusion's over there, magic's over there, whereas what lies outside of it is real. But, you know, we'll get to that with uh, um, simulacra and simulation. So with this being said... We have, And I have to really emphasize that reality is not the opposite of hyperreality. It's when reality is made to be, you know, totally apparent, when reality is made to be um, more itself than itself, if you will. So it's not as though reality disappears, but when it is made to be more of itself, when it's brought to its nth power, that we see the birth of a hyperreality. So it's not as though reality disappears but that it's there in its most extreme fashion. So in response to this system, Baudrillard proposes that in a place we would almost least expect it that we see a form of resistance manifest itself in graffiti or what he calls the insurrection of signs. So he states that in the spring of 1972 in New York a spate a spat of graffiti broke out which a starting with the ghetto walls and fences, finally overcame subways and buses, lorries and elevators, corridors and monuments, completely covering them in graphics, ranging from the rudimentary to the sophisticated. So the graffiti is for, for Baudrillard he, he suggests that they uh, it sprang up uh, after the repression of the great urban riots of the, uh, the 1960s, the late 1960s. Of which he says, like the riots, graffiti was a savage offensive, but of another kind, changing content and terrain, a new type of intervention in the city, no longer a site of economic and political power, but as a space of the terrorist power of the media, signs and the dominant culture. And I, as I said before, it's a little bit ironic that he would have located within uh, graffiti a sort of resistive potential, precisely because it relies on the same kind of relationship to signification where you know thing stands in for another thing but there's there's an immediacy to it that Baudrillard really liked and it was something that for him really challenged authority authority as it manifests itself in the form of simulation turning the same kind of structural uh oppressive um uh I guess institutions or whatever back against themselves Making a mockery of it, if you will, and responding immediately on the spot. So the signs that make up graffiti often ind- indiscernible, and I, you know, I speak for myself. I, I, m- much of the graffiti I see I can't read. And I think, I think it's safe to say it's the case for most people. But that that is where, for Baudrillard, the potential of it lies, precisely because they resist every interpretation and every connotation. They no longer denote anyone or anything. In this way, with neither connotation nor denotation, they escape the principle of signification, and as empty signifiers erupt into the sphere of the full signs of the city, dissolving it on contact. Because remember, what we see from the shift from the second to the third order is that sort of law of equivalence, where things are given, or a sort of meaning or false referentiality is kind of imposed back into the system. And I use the term false referentiality uh, hesitatingly. Because, again, it's not as though uh, reference ever, like, existed or the thing there existed, the the thing in itself or whatever. Uh, But still, there's something to be said about that and how the sign makes a mockery of that, kind of reinstating something of a mystery, reinstating the possibility that, you know, there are things that just can't be understood, reinstating the Dionysian-type, you know, mystery, the illusion of the world so where on one side you know you see graffiti as being a sort of resistive um, aesthetic there is also the more oppressive aesthetic and that comes out in the form for Baudrillard in fashion where fashion is something that exists by and for the system now it's important that I preface this by saying that it's nothing wrong with engaging in fashion right It just what people do but to craft a, a theory a radical theory for Baudrillard would be to, of course challenge every single domain of its of its being so what bourdieu says of of fashion is that where m- modernity is a code or at least where modernity kind of houses the potential for the code fashion is essentially its emblem so whereas in the, in the code, in, in modernity, we see the, the law of equivalence, or the structural law of value, Baudrillard says that contemporary with political economy and like the market, fashion is a universal form. In fashion, all signs are exchanged, just as, on the market, all products come into play as equivalents. So then there remains only the form of general equivalence, and that is fashion itself where there is, you know, the absolute recognition of signs as relating to other signs. And that is where all of its meaning derives. And in that sense it would seem to me like there there is something of a radical potential in that because it doesn't it doesn't labor under any illusion of there being that kind of reality, right? Fashion is in of itself a sort of mystery, right? No one knows where it'll go, no one knows why things have existed as they have trends are are stubbornly arbitrary and the way in which they guide and organize social behavior organization cultural stuff uh really i guess injects this sort of mystery i think so i think in a sense Baudrillard is, is wrong here in that he you know he, the way he looks down upon fashion it seems to me like it's it's something to be happy about in a sense where it doesn't take at its core some kind of transcendental property that connects itself with some kind of reality that exists outside of the realm of simulation but that's just me that's just me reading him here because like he said of Maus like he said of Marx and Freud we must read Baudrillard against Baudrillard we must forget him if you will but he says of it that it is almost that attachment to signification that from which it derives its oppressive potential or, if it's, or its oppressive power, energy. He says that it is the utter absurdity, the formal futility of the sign of fashion, the perfection of a system where nothing is any longer exchanged against the real. It is the arbitrariness of the sign at the same time as its absolute coherence constrained to a total relativity with other signs that makes for its contagious virulence and at the same time its collective enjoyment but i would still maintain that and especially thinking about his work later on which i'll make when i get to you know later texts like the the perfect crime and the illusion of the end and, and so on uh It'd be it's interesting to think back at some of his ideas here because it's easy to read in him now like this some kind of just a general conservatism, just a, a general disavowal of you know everything that is not doesn't abide by uh like a high culture type paradigm like a Dorno's critique of jazz for as one thing which is in my mind just a thinly veiled critique of. Blackness, but that's neither here nor there. Well, it it's pretty it's pretty fucking important, but it's not something I'll get into now. But I think we we should be weary of what Baudrillard is doing here, and you know I hope that people will take me to task on this and perhaps have a we'll try to redeem him in this way. But anyways, keep going. But where I could see fashion playing some sort of repressive function. In it, its hiding, in its veiling of the body, and in doing so, I think it's inadvertent, but it inscribes on the body a sort of naturality, a sort of the kind of originary thing on which fashion exists or fashion places itself. So fashion kind of takes over that space. Now this is uh, opens up many, many problems because then how do you think of fashion as not just uh, taking over and being, becoming like the body or becoming the more real than real or the, the mask in, in Deleuze? Uh, what role does it necessarily play? So Baudrillard says he, he, he th- wants to think of it as the body as not stopping at the porous skin, Full of holes and orifices only metaphysics institutes it as the borderline of the body so the skin itself is defined not as nudity but as an erogenous zone a sensuous medium of contact and exchange a metabolism of absorption and of excretion so then he gives the example of a james bond film Goldfinger, where he says that in it a woman is painted in gold all her orifices are blocked up in a radical makeup making her body a flawless phallus that the makeup should be gold only emphasizes the homology with political economy, which of course amounts to death. So the nude girl, the nude gold-varnished playgirl will die by having incarnated to an absurd extent the fantasism of the erotic, but this is the case for every skin and functional aesthetics in the mass culture of the body. So body-hugging tights, girdles, stockings... Gloves, dresses, and clothes, not to mention suntans, the leitmotiv of the second skin, and the transparent pellicle always come to vitrify the body, or to reify it in a sense, where I think fashion is, just serves that function, right? Where we we think fashion is just being this thing that signs against other signs, has no meaning, has no connection to a, um, a fundamental referentiality, but in a sense is complicit with The generation of that sort of referentiality, which is, remember, a distinct quality of third order simulacrum, the kind of construction of these zones of supposed reality or artificial reality. So what we see then is a utopia of nudity of the body present in its truth. This is at most the ideology of the body that can be represented. So then, you know, it is one of the ideas that pervades at least in the time he was writing this, you know, kind of following it semi during the uh, Quiet Revolution, the idea is deliberate the body as such, in accordance with naturalist illusions, which is deliberated as repressed, or suggest that it is a repressed thing, emphasizing the idea of there being this like unconscious that exists beneath the skin, just as the skin exists beneath fashion. Kinda of layering these things. Kind of concentric circles, right? we're at the the middle is the reality is the truth that with enough kind of archaeological excavation we can get at we can get to the bottom of it which Baudrillard wants to deter against and how those the concentric circles that fall outside of it only uh, I guess simulate the fact that there's nothing underneath that all it does or simulates the fact that there is something underneath that tries to convince us that you know, there there was once this thing that exists deep down that we can actually get back to. So one of the previous paths the previous passage I read uh, dealing with James Bond there, the location of the the woman kind of um, painted in gold, the location of that or the equation of that with a phallic image. This is something that that we'll unpack more in Seduction. His uh, not the next book, but the one that followed that one, um, when, he, when he thinks about how the location of a certain truth or the idea of there being truth is indicative of a sort of, you know, male-type gaze where the masculine is what believes in that truth, hence all the, those institutions that fall under it, right? Scientific observation, whatever, political economy, any of these things... Uh, do that so in the context of this argument when the body is that site of truth truthfulness of reality of you know naturality then we are speaking about the masculine hence the idea of the phallus but of course we have to be very careful and we can't simply attach to the masculine the idea the the biological male right because these things can come to be Um, occupied by either sex or any sex to be a little bit more proper in how I how I address this where the masculine is a very oppressive force but is not necessarily indicative of men in air quotes so what then what what comes to stand in for the body in this in this um, framework or in this kind of epoch Baudrillard, or the symbol that symbolizes it, is the mannequin. So what he says of that is that contemporary with the robot, this is the ideal pair of science fiction, Barbarella. The mannequin also represents a totally functionalized body under the law of value, but this time as the site of the production of the value sign. It is no longer labor power, but models of signification that are produced not only by sexual models of fulfillment, but sexuality itself as a model. Which then comes to stand in for reality, stand in for truth, whatever. Uh, and the mannequin is interesting, especially in his equation with uh, the robot and the idea of science fiction, because Ursula K. Le Guin has a, has, you know, a nice short story called Mannequin. Doesn't have that many, doesn't actually have any sci-fi themes, but it, it thinks about how, you know, where does woman end and mannequin r- begin? You know, in many ways, the two constructed under this uh, through the male gaze right kind of given their identity based off of what is expected of them so it's clear that Baudrillard has a beef with Marcusean type ideas of liberation right because for Baudrillard there's nothing to be liberated in fact we're seeing this liberation in the hyperreal forms in which they're then kind of retroactively constructed where in the science system, we retroactively construct there having been a body, a unitary-type body system, body machine, and then from there uh, houses the radical potential for the emancipation of that thing, and, you know, the um, anti-capitalist, anti-colonial I guess uh, movements that would follow. To this, you know, Bojard says that to take, the so- to take the side of the body is a trap. We cannot take the side of the primary processes. This remains a secondary illusion, in that it works precisely in that same framework. It is part and parcel of the system to think about there being, you know, that originary type entity, and that by emancipating it, well, you open up the domain for this possible, you know, reevaluation stuff that I've been covering pretty. Uh, steadily so far but he returns back to Marx here to say that if Marx had has described the historical phase where the alienation of labor and the logic of the commodity necessarily resulted in a reification of consciousness today we could say that the inscription of the body and of all symbolic domains into the logic of the sign is necessarily doubled by a reification of the unconscious where you know to what, to what extent did, or that question, I, I don't know whoever, who would have asked this, but uh, is it that Freud discovered the unconscious or did he create it? Is it that this thing always already existed? Or in the context of Baudrillard here, is the idea of the unconscious a strategy? Is the idea of the unconscious something that uh, develops precisely at the moment of its death, if you will? Not to suggest that it ever existed, but at the point that it could never actually exist and that its existence is only in the service of the same oppressive frameworks that, you know, as indicative of Marcuse, they've been trying to extract from the unconscious. So what he says is that from now on, liberated subjectivity is exhausted in describing itself as a positivity in the exercise of eros pleasure principle, which is simply the reification of the libido as the model model of fulfillment. There is a new reason here, opening the way to an unlimited finality of the subject, and so there is no longer any difference between sexual escalation and the scheme of indefinite social growth, of the liberation of the forces of production. Both evolve according to the same movement, both equally destined for failure in accordance with the irre- irrevocable reflex of a death drive they thought they could conjure away so it's on that note i think i'll have to wrap this one up here uh because we we'll would be moving into the next chapter which we'll be getting to. ah we're we'll getting into death finally this is when he starts to shift gears and you know we're gonna if i sound like a broken record i'm sorry but this is the point that we're gonna we're gonna start to see a shift and i don't know if i could possibly encapsulate this in one more video it would probably take two unfortunately but anyways for those that listened throughout up until this point uh thank you and please if you have any beef to pick with me uh you know how to leave it i've I've been hesitant to you know say please subscribe but uh i've been pretty consistent in putting up videos here. I didn't know how consistent I would be and I wouldn't want I would I would actually deter people from subscribing because then it would just be another subscription they had they get the one video every 5 or 6 months and, it, and then they're like oh forget it like I'm not interested in this. But I feel like and I feel like many people are kind of not necessarily waiting but I think that the most views and stuff will come with jared's most popular work. But what I'm you know the few people that actually make it to the end of this and are listening to this, I'm not really interested in, you know, getting views or doing what people necessarily want. I'm really interested in Baudrillard here and the other theorists we cover or I cover because it's really just about the distribution of these ideas and thinking about it in a critical way and, you know, going against Baudrillard and allowing for a response in the form of comments. Limited response, albeit, but... I am very much open to them. But anyways, for those that listen, thank you very much. And I hope to see you again soon.